Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode number 142, Origins of the War of the Roses. In the last episode, we left the Tudors back in the good graces of the king, who now desired to know his step-siblings better. The mid-15th century was one of massive changes for the England, one that had far-reaching consequences for Welsh possessions and for Welsh fortunes. It was in the midst of this change and turmoil that a young lady was born on the outskirts of Ponte Mousson in Lorraine. Her name was Margaret, and she was born March 23, 1430. This small little outpost was a fief of the Holy Roman Empire to the east of France and was ruled by a cadet branch of the French kings from the house of Valois-Anjou. Margaret was the second daughter of René king of Naples, and of Isabella, Duchess of Lorraine. Her father, properly known as Good King Rennie, was the Duke of Anjou. She spent her early years in the castle at Terrasson on the River Rhone in Provence and on the old royal palace at Capua near Naples in the Kingdom of Sicily. At the age of 14, likely during the negotiations with France, Margaret was offered by her cousin, King Charles VII, to King Henry VI as part of the negotiations. She was then proxy married to the king through the Earl of Suffolk in his mission of 1444. At this time, noblewomen were commonly used as pawns in political fate, and children were often used as part of bargaining when it came to peace treaties and other sort of arrangements such as alliances or all these kind of things, be it at the young noble ages and more modest nobility or in higher terminology between kingdoms. When Suffolk returned to France in 1445 to bring the new queen to England, he was accompanied by Owen Tudor, the rehabilitated Welshman was back in the good books of the courts and once again serving in the halls of power. Margaret, like many women of this era, was not a complete pawn. Even though she was 14, she had been educated and knew how to use her newfound power to create a cadre of allies in the English court. This included the Earl of Suffolk, a friend of the Tudors and enemy to the Duke of Gloucester and his supporters. Margaret played a key role in both running England for many years and the ending of the Hundred Years' War. Edward Hall, writing a century later, described her personality as this, A woman excelled above all others, as well as in beauty and favor and in wit and policy, and was of stomach and courage more like to a man than a woman. In contemporary art, if it can be trusted, Margaret was a woman of beauty and in personality of political acumen in a period when strong women were mistrusted or denounced. She would be treated harshly at times, but she survived much and knew how to make the most of the circumstances in which she'd been placed, and and quite a number of times were not generally in her favor. In 1445, Henry was officially married to Margaret, and she was made Queen of England, and... It was at this time period as Henry was expanding his 
connections within certain groups within the court, marrying into a noble family, creating linkages to the French crown, that he began to feel much more emboldened, much more willing to use his power against those perceived to be a hindrance to him. One such was his powerful cousin, Richard, the Duke of York, who at the time had been the commander-in-chief in France for the war. York ruled the wealthy former lands of Northumbria, and as an ally to Gloucester, had been a stern supporter of carrying on the war with France. So he was a key person who Henry had to deal with, because, of course, Henry at this point knew that he wanted to end the war, to return peace to his land, and having strong war hawks actually carrying out and maneuvering through the war would actually be a problem for this process. The other problem for him was dealt with in 1447 when the Duke of Gloucester, the final remaining son of Henry IV, was arrested over accusations that his wife was a witch and that she had aimed to cause the king's death through witchcraft and sorcery. In the medieval era, this was a serious accusation and one that could carry very severe consequences. Historians suspect that behind this were two purposes. One, that Gloucester was the last remaining senior advisor to Henry that opposed ending the war with France. Much of the inner circle were willing to give away the Anglo-French possessions to gain peace. Two, the new Queen Margaret likely did not want Gloucester around as he was currently the presumptive heir to Henry. This meant, should Henry die, Gloucester would likely turn out the foreign-born queen and her court. Gloucester's death was mourned in Wales, where he had served as justice to both North and South Wales. He had retained many Welshmen in his service and had stirred up great sense of loyalty among them, so much so that he was accused of stirring up Welsh rebellion by his detractors. It was around this period that much was done to rebuild relations with the Tudors, which should also be seen calculated to annoy Gloucester. His arrest, as mentioned earlier, caused him to suffer what has been called a stroke, and probably as a result of the stress of the arrest and incarceration, keeping in mind that at this period of time, jails were not exactly wonderful, healthy places to be. Combine that with his age, and you can see why it may have been an issue. His death would lead to a lot of discontent and suspicion in the face of the French peace treaty of 1448 that gave away Anjou and Maine. Henry made an error in judging the king of France. Likely, he wanted the treaty because of his dislike of war in general and his understanding of what religious teachings would tell him about war. The idea that wars were evil inherently, that fighting for territory or fighting for something outside of fighting for God's justice made little to no sense and would definitely have driven a lot of his personality and his drive. As we have learned in the past, he had a very much been linked to his piety and in other 
points in time may have been considered a saintly king, but unfortunately for him, this was not the time to be saintly and not the time to be a king that was perceived as being weak. And this drove a lot of the problem between Henry VI and his kingdom. But also underlying the court's concern was the cost of the war, which had increasingly put England into financial troubles. One of its largest creditors was Cardinal Beaufort. A strange mess of religion and faithful financing had put the church increasingly in wealthy positions of power. Not surprisingly, as a man of the cloth and chief financier, he was not fond of giving away money to fight wars in France. It also gives you a clear idea why later kings would look enviously on the wealth of the church and the power it had in these countries, particularly when the same church kept teaching kings that they were God's chosen instrument on earth. Two of King Henry's greatest problems were about to come out of the woodwork in 1450. Both would be thorns for his entire life. Charles VII cancelled the peace and attacked the English in their old home of Normandy. With victories in Normandy and the English influence driven completely out of the lands of the former Norman conquerors, it left them without their oldest and most valuable territory. Duke William's heirs had lost the land that had been so important to his conquest. Only Gascony remained in English hands, but by 1453 the English had lost yet another massive battle, and that was the unofficial end of the Hundred Years' War. English stubbornness did not see an actual negotiated end until 1475, and English kings and queens continued to use the title King or Queen of France until 1803, when the heirs of the French throne finally fled to Britain in the midst of the Napoleonic Wars. The English population were outraged at the losses. Many blamed the king and his court. The king avoided blame by pinning it on his advisors, and many paid the ultimate price for their failures. Three of these main court advisors were dead within six months of the loss of Normandy. Bishop of Salisbury, William Ayscoff, was set upon by a mob and killed. The Bishop of Chichester, Adam Mullins, was lynched by a mob in Portsmouth. Suffolk was also blamed and while he initially escaped with only banishment, as he attempted to cross to France, he was taken by a mob and beheaded with a rusty sword. The fury was palpable in the country. So much death, coin, and hope had been pinned on defeating France over the last century that there was little tolerance for anyone who allowed this to happen. Even in Wales, the loss of this territory was seen as a terrible thing, one that was dishonorable. Bards and poets, relying on funding from Welsh nobility, focused on the deeds of Welsh knights in the war, from the glory-achieving accomplishments to their acquirement of massive booty and wealth. Their desire to show the success of their patrons was not concerned about the consequences of those choices, nor who they killed, murdered, raped to get there. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. 
also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. For Welsh noble families, the war had been successful in helping some specific ones escape from being perceived specifically as Welsh. Some gained land in France and in other cases were able to marry into successful families in the Anglo-French lands. But that success had come to an end. For some of those nobles in France, they had a difficult choice of deciding whether to forfeit the lands that they had gained and the money that came with them and power, or acknowledge that King Charles was their lord. In some cases, that was more than likely the choice that was made. Certainly, if you think about it, if some Welsh noble returned back to Wales after having, you know, what would be considered bountiful and quality land in France, only to end up as a landless noble in name only back in Wales, you can see why they would be entranced to take on the allegiance to a king who maybe they were fighting against four years earlier. Those veterans that did return in some cases, however, fought those who rebelled against the crown. In 1450, Jack Cade led an army of men from the southeast who were angry at the loss of Normandy and specifically at the king's inner circle. They marched on London, and during that march, a Welsh veteran by the name of Matthew Goff was killed at London Bridge during the battle, or looting spree, depending on your viewpoint. Cade basically lost control of his men at this point, and they ended up looting the city. And because of that, a lot of the momentum and nobility of his cause fell apart. And uh, as he tried to escape, was caught up and killed during a battle to try and get away. Wales of the dying days of the what, 100 Years' War was 
considered a lawless place, especially on the edge of the marches where men were prone to raid around the borders. Many farmers and merchants in Herefordshire, Shropshire, and elsewhere complained about these raids. Nobles from Wales would even participate in them, such as the future Earl of Shrewsbury, John Talbot, who led at least one raid that we know of. Other lords and ladies hired ruffians from Wales to damage others and to murder rivals. There was no love lost in this era, and certainly any one-upmanship you can get by stealing someone's land by killing that family off gave you an advantage, you would take it. The one aspect of the 1447 Troubles meant that Parliament upheld the Welsh law, which had become laxly enforced over the last decade. As, as part of this reaffirmation, it was said that all grants of franchises, markets, fairs, and other freedoms to buy or sell, bake or brew, or sell in towns in North Wales made to any Welshman before this time were void and of no value. In other words, if you sold to a Welshman, it, there was no cost to it now, and you don't earn anything from it. Once again, Welsh merchants themselves were shut out of English markets, at least out of the towns around them, and at least in writing. In reality, two years later, much of the issues in Wales remained, and unsurprisingly, making laws that were not enforceable outside of London did little to stem the flow of what was happening in the countryside, and specifically in Wales. Those who were able to take advantage were able to claw power for themselves and their families in Wales as the power of the centre stagnated. While there was no movement in Wales, the country remained at times a power unto itself. The idea of a formal revolution or a race to gain independence had long since passed out of public mindset, but one has to remember that people at this point in time in what amounted to effectively a failed state, were seeking to gain their own financial wealth and well-being. They were not concerned about consequences because there was no one to carry out the consequences. Much of the legal ramifications came down to how poor you were or how able you were to hide amongst those that would protect you or find places to hide that weren't in an area where the English were uh, gentry and or enforcement were willing to go look for you. So if you could hide in a forest and come out and strike on a public road, if you were able to hit an area of farmland and steal from them and murder and take from them and kidnap people and sell them back, and you were able to do this while either being supported by family members or by the tacit turning of a blind eye, then it didn't matter what laws were in place and what was going on. The reality of it was, is England barely could manage its own affairs, let alone trying to enforce things in Wales. And still, key figures watched what was going on and waited. In August of 1453, at the same time that England was losing its last battle to France, Margaret was announced to be with child, and finally a possible heir was on the way. It was at this very moment when everything seemed to finally be looking up for the monarchy that Henry VI suffered the first of his episodes, falling into a stupor that would and could not be revived from. 
This happened around the time that the crown finally had acknowledged the loss of France. Realistically, all this stress and pressure of what had been going on likely inflamed the problems that the king was having. It is very difficult to diagnose what all the problems were in his mental state. Was it an effect of being a child whose father died before he even knew his face? Was it the fact that he had very little uh, understanding of how the world worked, very little relationship with the things that were going on around him? Had it made him in some way incapable of understanding or incapable of knowing what to do in times of crisis? And had that problem been exacerbated by the loss of those closest to him who were uncles and great uncles and cousins and being left with effectively new friends and a new wife did all of this collectively work on his mind in a way to make his already delicate nature that much more so it's hard to say, but the fact that these episodes would continue to come up throughout his life, that he would continue to go into these moments of incapability of doing much more than eating and functionally useless otherwise, he became an example, basically, of, of what mental health issues can do to a person. And unfortunately for him and for the country, it was at a terrible time for that to happen. His issues could have been dealt with if the monarchy was stronger, if his his court was stronger and more united amongst the higher nobility, it might have been something they could have worked with and could have worked around. And at the same time, much like what happened with George III, even though he was losing his faculties later in life, the kingdom didn't really suffer from that in later times. It it was managed differently and taken care of in a different way. And of course, this is in a time period where the parliament had much more power than it did in the Middle Ages. But nonetheless, the, the infrastructure was there to deal with the crisis. But with Henry VI, as he was considered to be the head of state, the key to all power in the country, and the example for others, it became insurmountable and the problem became difficult at best and chaotic at worst. This mental break left the kingdom without a functioning head and in its circumstances some began to question the suitability of the remaining members of the court as advisors and leaders. Of course, as so often happens in those circumstances, the queen would get the lion's share of the blame for what was going on since these people were considered to be her favorites, and the fact that it was her and not him would also reflect badly on her, even if that had nothing to do with it. In the heat of the crisis, the Duke of York struck, and England and Wales would be rocked by the consequences of a king with no faculty to rule and powerful men and women trying to do so in his stead and at odds with each other. Meanwhile, Welshmen close to power, like Owen Tudor, were about to get completely caught up in this crisis. With that, thank you for listening. Thank you for 
being a part of this journey. And uh, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod, or you can join us on Facebook at Welsh at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. Uh, and if you'd like to contribute to our Patreon, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Welsh History. Uh, we are continuing to move along in the, this turbulent time period of the War of the Roses, and we're unfortunately just kicking into high gear when it comes to all that. So please stick with us, and we will talk to you later. Have a great day, and we'll see you next time. Take care, everyone. Bye. been a Distractions Media production. And for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.